0: If you have your Bibles, open them to Psalms chapter 3. There we go. Psalms chapter 3 as we continue our study here in the book of Psalms. I was hoping to do like a bunch of chapters tonight and let's pick up some speed or else Kevin's prophecy about it taking three years is going to come true. But... uh, just not what the Lord had. So, Psalm three. If you weren't with us um, last week, Psalms in the Hebrew means poetry or praise accompanied with music. It, so, it literally means like praise songs or songs of praise. The Book of Psalms is a collection of 150 Hebrew poems, songs, and prayers that come from all different eras of Israel's history. We looked at that last week, thousand year span of its writing, 73 of these Psalms, we know they're connected to King David. He was the author. Uh, And we're actually going to look at two of his psalms tonight. Uh, But there was other authors that contributed to what we would know as the book of psalms. You have Asaph, who wrote 12 of them. The sons of Korah uh, produced 10 other worship leaders in in the temple. Heman and Ethan produced one apiece. And then King Solomon had a couple and Moses, of course. And then there's 48, roughly 48, that are anonymous. But as I mentioned last week, Psalms is divided into five books uh, or collections, if you will. They're not written in chronological order necessarily, but they've been arranged in five books. So we're right now in book one. That's Psalms one through 41. That's book one. And then uh, book two starts at chapter 42 through 72 and so on. And we'll get there in a couple of years maybe, so. Um, but right now we're, we're in that first collection of psalms and these, all, all the psalms have different feelings, different themes, different, different tones. There's some psalms that tell us about who God is. There's some that are just for various seasons and times in our lives. We have the psalms of Thanksgiving and we're gonna come to those and you're gonna, you're gonna notice them because they're just filled with gratitude. You have the psalms of praise. You have psalms of wisdom. And then you have the Psalms of lament and those lament Psalms express pain and anger and frustration as the author, it looks out at the world or looks at his own life and he's just begging God, do something about this. My heart is heavy. Do something. Respond to your people. And tonight, we're going to continue um, in our series in chapter three, and we have a psalm of lament. And so it says, join with me. Let's read through it. It's only eight verses. It says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Oh, Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God, Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain, Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Selah. So here we have chapter three. This psalm, because we're early in the book, gives us a number of firsts, if you will. Psalm three is the first psalm to give us a heading. Did you notice that? The heading in your Bible names the author, and it gives us a little bit of a description of the historical setting about David's life when he was writing the psalm. It's also the first psalm to use the term Selah to um, structure the uh, composition of its writing. And finally, it is the first psalm of lament that we have in our collection Now, when it comes to that word selah, and we're going to look at it um, as we go along tonight, it is generally a thought to indicate a pause, a temporary pause in the musical preparation of the psalm, or perhaps maybe just an instrumental interlude. And I, I kind of liken it to when Pastor Josh, after singing a song doesn't necessarily just stop and we're done, but just give space. Maybe he finger picks on the guitar or just drums the guitar, pauses the singing and just letting the lyrics that we just sang just kind of deep, dig deeper, kind of settle, resolve, let the dust settle, if you will, on those amazing truths, just to ponder, if you will, about what we just uh, had sung. And so it's just a time to slow down, to consider what was just said or sung. Now, some scholars, guys way smarter than me, like Charles Spurgeon, if you will, they feel like Psalm three and four are connected. Uh, because Psalm 3 ends with Selah, which means slow down, take a pause, and then move on. Like, we're, we're not done yet, right? There's not a period. And then Psalm 4 happens to be an evening psalm. So Psalm 3 is more of a morning song. We're going to kind of look at that a little bit. Psalm 3 is an eve, or Psalm 4 is an evening prayer, something that would be sung or prayed right before you went to bed. Again, we'll look at that when we get there. And that psalm, Psalm 4, was written to the choir director, or maybe you're in your translation above Psalm 4, to the chief musician. Actually, there's 55 psalms that are addressed to that person. And that just means that these psalms were intended to be sung corporately. That's all it means. They were to be part of corporate worship, public worship, if you will. And so that would be both Psalm 3 and 4, if they're joined at the hip, a morning and an evening prayer. So let's dive right in. And the introduction, the context we have here, which is amazing of this chapter, it says, it's a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, King David... If you remember, he reigned for decades as one of the most powerful leaders in all of the world. He was a mighty warrior himself. He led a military like no other. He had expanded Israel's borders and the nation was growing under his leadership. He had become very wealthy, living in a beautiful palace with his many wives and servants. He had absolute authority over life and death of everyone in the kingdom. And so no one ever dared to kind of get on his bad side. Very powerful man. He is a man who's in charge. But as we all know the story possibly of his life, David was not perfect. David sinned by committing adultery with Bathsheba. And the sinning didn't just stop there, but he got her pregnant and now he had to cover it up. You guys remember the story? So he tries to send Uriah, that's Bathsheba's husband, maybe to the, you know, or no, he tries to scheme, right? He tries to scheme, hey, would you take a load off, leave the, leave the, the fighting and just come home, just hang with your wife for, for a little bit. And that just didn't work, man. Uriah was just one of his mighty men. He was, a, he was a warrior. He's like, no, I have responsibility out there. And so David's starting to panic a little bit. We know the story. And it, and it ends up that David sends Uriah to the front lines and Pulls everyone back, all of his support back, and Uriah gets killed because of David's plans. And it's after that that the prophet Nathan confronts David, calls him on the carpet um, about his sin, but David repents. That's what we love about David. Not that he's perfect, but that he is quick to repent. He's humble before the Lord. But David's sins did set in motion a series of devastating consequences that we find out about. David's oldest son, Amnon, ends up raping his half-sister, Tamar. And David didn't handle it at all. In one of his many failures as a father, he felt like, man, I've blown it publicly just in my own life. I've sinned publicly. Even, and even though I've repented, even though I know God has forgiven me, he's shown me much mercy in my life. I should have been dead, but he's given me life instead. Who am I to point out the, the wrongs of others, especially my kids? They saw my sin probably firsthand. They didn't just hear about it. And so he doesn't deal with his, with his son here for um, doing that to his daughter. And so Tamar's brother, Absalom, David's other son, decides, okay, dad's not going to deal with this. I'm going to take revenge. I'm going to get justice. And he kills Amnon. And so Absalom, after he, he commits the act of murder, ends up fleeing into exile for a few years Later, he was given permission to return to Jerusalem from his dad. But after he gets back into town, it's really interesting that his father doesn't want to see him. And it goes on for two years. And during that two-year period of time where he's near his dad but can't, can't interact with him, this caused resentment to be built up in Absalom's heart. And Absalom doesn't like it at all. He begins to scheme against his dad. He uses this time as an opportunity to build up his reputation. He says, fine, you know what? We don't need dad. I can just lead and be, I can make my own kind of pedestal and I'll be fine without him. And so he begins to build his reputation among the disgruntled people in the kingdom. Absalom is a very, very, not an evil guy. If you look at him, he's very charismatic, right? Very just politically charged. He's probably a very easy one to follow. He won the favor of a ton of people. As he presents himself, we find out as a more sympathetic leader than his father, his powerful father, trying to win the affection of the nation. And then Absalom tells his father after he's allowed to see him, hey, dad, I need to go up to Hebron. I've, I've got some business up there to take care of. And David, you know, David blesses his son, Absalom, lets him go his way. Actually, the last thing that David says to Absalom is, peace be with you, my son. That's David's heart, man, still towards his son. Peace be with you. And so Absalom, he goes up to Hebron, takes several hundred men with him, and it's there that he begins his hostile takeover. It's there that he pronounces himself to be king instead of his dad. Like, what is going on? But here's the tragic thing. Several thousand begin to gather and follow after him. Absalom successfully leading this rebellion against David. And when David finds out, we're told that he just hangs his head. He tells his, his supporters, his family, he's like, guys, we got to get our stuff. We got to get out of town. Let's go. He says, I am not going to... to to be about mass slaughter. I'm not gonna do a bunch of bloodshed. We're not gonna divide and ruin the city. I don't wanna see the city destroyed over this. And so in order to survive, David flees, it says immediately with all of his supporters, he flees Jerusalem, the king. And so David and all of these people, they're on the run. He's crying, his heart is broken. He's walking around barefoot, the scripture tells us. His head is covered in shame. And just to make things worse for David, a man by the name of Shimei from the, from the family of King Saul came out as David passed by him. And he just starts to curse David. Oh, David, you, Whatever you fool, you blankety blank. And he just starts to pick up rocks and throw them at David, accusing him. David, you are worthless. You brought this on yourself. You deserve this, David. Probably one of David's most traumatic, humiliating experiences in his whole life right here on display. Everything he had spent his whole life working for. Achieving, accomplishing, came crashing down in a moment's time. Many people that he thought were his allies and his friends, they abandoned him and they sided with his son. And you can read more of this story in detail in 2 Samuel, I think it's 15 through 17 or somewhere in there. But the most painful wound of all was the betrayal of his son. And I think it's because it brought home to David his own failure as a father, not dealing with his own sin, not spiritually leading his own family. One of his sons is murdered. His daughter has been abused by, his, by her half-brother, and the murderer is chasing after him. Life, as you could say, was falling apart for David. That's the context of this psalm. It's, it's nice to have the backstory, isn't it? that David's on the run from his own son. His heart is heavy. His life is just unraveling. And that's where we find ourselves in verse one. He says, oh Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Selah. So as Absalom, again, it's leading this rebellion against his father, he's done a great job of just convincing the people to join forces with him. 2 Samuel 15, 13 says, then a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. Wow. The hearts of the men. These guys that you have fought for, you've defended, you've cared, you've led, are now have betrayed you and, and they're with your son Absalom. And so David's leaving Jerusalem in tears. He's mourning over what's happening. His son's overthrowing him. But I love how David starts this out. He says, Oh Lord, he begins by crying out to God, Lord, how did this happen? I used to be the king. People used to love me. They used to sing songs about me. Remember that early in his career? It was Saul has slain his thousands, but David has tens of thousands. That's how his career got started. People used to adore me. How did this happen, Lord? He says, Many are rising up against me. The, the word um, um, increased is increasing, is a verb meaning have become many or they're multiplying. Again, David's not talking, this is just a, a one-time event and then it de-escalated or, or a singular circumstance of oppression, but rather he's talking about, no, no, this is an ongoing, dangerous, escalating situation, life-threatening situation in a, a, to overtake his life, threatening to overtake his life. He says, there's many coming after me. Their number is growing by the minute. And not only are they coming physically for me, They're just flinging discouragement all day long. He says in verse two, many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. What? David's situation was looking so bad for him at the moment that he says, many people are looking at me. They're looking at my situation. They're like, not even God can bail him out on this one. And not just that God can't help, but that God was probably unwilling to help him out. They're probably considering his past sins here. This is probably the context of that. Well, you know, it's about time that his sin and his past finally caught up with him. And this is what he's always deserved from God. You know, he's an adulterer. He's a murderer. It's, it's about time that God doesn't come through and bail him out and show him mercy. And David says, many are saying this. There's no deliverance for him and God. Like, maybe below. Talk, talk about trying to strip any amount of hope. Right, just just say that God is just going to be absent from you, but the enemy—he's clearly using David's past against him. You know, his son again, or his sin was done in public, and although he repented of his sin, they're just bringing it up. They're, they're still using it against him. And then it says, "There, say la, pause, time out. There's no deliverance for him and God. Like what? Like ponder this. What are they saying? Let's reflect." Quiet the noise. Look at our current circumstance, if you will, and let's just pause before the Lord. That's that's the writing of the psalm right here. It's a weird time to take a pause. Normally, my personality, I'm like, let's get to the happy part. Come on, like, let's get to the victory. No, no, we're pausing right here in the discouragement, in in the tension, in the pain, in the trial. And Let me ask you tonight, before we move on, have you ever been in a situation like this in your life? Maybe you've been... Betrayed by a spouse or a child or a best friend. People spreading gossip about you, stabbing you in the back. Someone that was once close is not close anymore. Or something maybe just happens in your life. You just, it's the power is out of your control. You can't do anything about it. A lot like David, you can just stop this thing from happening. Maybe you get fired from your job, whatever it is. It's just a situation where your life just feels like it's falling apart. Have you guys ever been there? The life that you once knew, the life that you once had experienced is now pretty much over. But it's not that you're, you're just going through this super painful time in your life, but people are starting to tell you, bro, like God, God won't even help you. God is gonna be distant from you. I don't know if you deserve his help. Like you got into the, this mess, God's not going to bail you out. Man, that's painful. You know, my wife and I, we've never experienced, I, don't, I wouldn't say anything like David here with his son Absalom. But, you know, over the years, we've experienced our hurts and our pains. People that you think are the closest to you that would have your back through thick and thin would t- turn on you and start saying like hurtful things. And then even, even you're like, man, even if this does get resolved, I don't even know if I can trust them again. We've, we've been there, right? Yeah. But listen, when life seems to be falling apart like it is for David, we have to remember who God is in that moment. All around us is shifting and changing by the moment and we have to always center back on the reality of who God is, not what your past is. Not what, how you've messed up and start believing what your naysayers are saying about your circumstance, but remember who God is. Look at verse three, I love this. He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my hand. I was crying to the Lord with my voice and he answered me from his holy mountain. Notice those two words in verse three, but you. It doesn't matter what everyone else is saying. It doesn't matter how much discouragement you've received. And it doesn't even matter how you're feeling in the moment, David. Like he's reminding himself, set all those things aside. He says, but you, oh Lord, you're a shield about me. You're my glory. You're the the one who lifts my head. He says, you, oh Lord, you're the shield. David was a warrior. He knew the value of a shield, right? The term here for for a shield that he's using, normally, it normally refers to like a smaller, maybe round shield that would protect the arm and protect the upper torso, but give him some movement so he can kind of go on the offense a little bit. But David says about that shield, he says, the Lord is that shield. But it's not this small round shield that's just in one spot that's kind of limited. He says, no, this shield is all around me. It's in front of me, it's behind me, it's to the the left and to the right of me. This is I'm I am circled by the shield. I am like fully covered by the Lord who's my shield. And again, David, he understood this, this importance. He was a warrior, been in battle many times but he also knows that he's not just being shielded physically from danger, he's being shielded from his accusers. And that's a great word for you and I tonight, because sometimes we find ourselves in situations, maybe we've sinned, maybe we've, we've made foolish decisions, mistakes, but in Satan, doesn't he just love to condemn us? The Bible says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. You guys know that? And how many times, though, do we fall into his traps and we start believing? We start believing in him. You know, we've repented, yes. We know that God has forgiven us, but man, that accusation just keeps coming up. Oh, you worthless piece of junk or whatever it is. God will never use you. God will never bless you. God will, whatever, God will never work in your life. You know, David could start to believe that right here. Yeah, you know what? I probably do deserve this. I've, I'm a horrible father. I'm adulterer. I'm a murderer. Like, like I've, I've made my, you know, I've sinned. I've made my mistakes. I was wrong. But maybe he's, maybe he's even remembering the words of Nathan. You guys remember Nathan's prophecy over David? He says, hey, the sword is not going to depart from your house. Someone is going to rise up from within your house. Maybe, he's, maybe he could be buying into that too. Like, man, this is it. This is my destiny. And David could fall into that. Oh, you know, I could, I could be, this, this is what I deserve. But he doesn't do that. You know, I think of the words of this old hymn. Um, I've actually never heard it sung before, but I've always heard it referenced, and I love it. It's from the hymn, "His, His Be the Victor's Name. It says this, While the accuser roars of sins that I have done, I know them all and thousands more, but my God, he knoweth none. Can I read that one more time? While the accuser roars of sins that I have done, I know them all and thousands more, but my God, he knoweth none. Lord, the accusations are coming at me. My sin is just being brought to the surface again. I thought we dealt with this. I'm losing credit in the sight of the people. Like I'm losing influence over the kingdom. But he says, but you, oh Lord, you're the shield about me. He's saying, you're my protection. You're my safety. If every time an accusation comes my way, Lord, you're my shield. I don't have to worry. I've got protection here. then he says, you're my glory. The one, I love this, the one who lifts up my head. You know, Absalom, he knew nothing about this mentality, this heart. No, Absalom, he wanted power. He's like, I've got the glory. I will build my own glory, right? But David, he says, no, no, my glory, my glory is in the Lord. Lord, you're my glory. You know, it's so, so true in our, in our own lives and the people that we interact with. And maybe even some of us, our glory can be in our, in our money or our fame or our sex or our position or titles at work. So many things that we can find glory in. But David says, Lord, you're my glory. You are not the throne in which I used to sit on, not my kingship, not my, uh, uh, my, my grand treasury or my authority over the people. But he says, but you, Lord, you're my glory. God, it doesn't matter if my kingdom ever gets reestablished back to me. It doesn't matter if I'm ever respected again amongst the the people of the nation. It doesn't matter at all. Why? Because you're my glory. And that's enough. You're the one, Lord, that lifts my head. And I love that. I remember in, in, in 2 Samuel 15, David's leaving Jerusalem and he's weeping because he's just heartbroken of what his son is doing. He's ripping, he's tearing the kingdom apart and he's seeing the effects of his sin on full display and it tells us that he covers his head and it reminds me of like my one of my kids and probably what I did when I was younger when when something maybe horrible happened maybe someone hurt your feelings and maybe they're wearing like a hoodie and they just put their 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 what the cover what is that thing called the hood yeah they're a hoodie oh, my gosh they put their hood over their head and they just kind of shrink back. You know, they, they just hide their face and they're just like, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to talk. I don't want to, you know, I'm just kind of, I just need some quiet. Like that's kind of what it reminds me of. Reminds me of. And so when I want to get my son's attention or my daughter's attention, I go to him. And what do I do? I'm like, son, no, no, no. I'm lifting his head. I'm lifting her head. I'm saying, let's talk about this. That's what David is saying about the Lord. The Lord, I'm there. I just don't even want to look out. I don't want to see. I'm just in full of shame and just sorrow. But the Lord, he says, man, the Lord's the lifter of my head. And that's what's happening to him. Verse four, I was crying to the Lord with my voice and he answered me from his holy mountain. I love this. One commentator said that David's Crying out to the Lord doesn't express a single act or a one-time thing, but rather the habit of his life. And that is true if you know the life of David. Always just crying out to the Lord. And it says that, I love this, that God answers him. Everyone else is saying that not even God will help David or bail him out. But David says here confidently about the Lord, he answers me. He answered me, he heard me. And let that be a word for you, man. If you need to hear from the Lord, cry out, Sam. He's not far. He's not distant. He will answer. And then it says, again, Selah, like, pause on that. Reflect on that. Like, time out. Like, let's just consider what does this mean? I cried to the Lord and he answered me. Again, let, let the, like, let the, let's quiet the noise of our lives. Let's look at our current circumstance and let's just pause before the Lord. Be reminded of who he is. He's the God who sees. He's the God who hears. He's the God who responds. And I was just kind of thinking like, man, for us even tonight in this room and those watching online, like think about your life right now. Maybe you're hearing nothing from the Lord. You're just, man, it feels dry. I'm just, man, I'm going through circumstances and situations and I, and I feel like I'm, I'm praying, but I'm not hearing. Know this, that the Lord is still listening. The Lord is still near. The Lord will answer. He will respond. Verse five, I laid down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who have set themselves against against me round about. This was his current reality. Thousands of people coming against him. But I love what he says. He says, I laid down last night and I slept. I woke up in the morning and I can tell the story all about it. He said, the Lord sustained me. And we see right here, just the evidence of God's nearness, God's presence in his life. I think about um, Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me, right? The presence of the Lord just gives us calmness. But have you guys ever been through a trial or a really tough situation? It could be a financial burden, and it just keeps you awake at night. It's just like, Lord, I don't know how we're going to get it. Or maybe you have that meeting tomorrow. You know you're getting fired or whatever it is, like with the boss. You're just, your heart's going all night long. You're spinning. Your mind's going a million miles an hour. You're grieving in your heart. You're just like, ah, like what's going to happen? But David says, that should have been my story. I should have been there. That should have been my experience through the night, but I slept. During the night, I was unaware of just what was happening around me because I was, I was snoozing. I don't need NyQuil. <laughs> I don't need anything else. He's, he's not even comfortable in his own bed at his house. Notice that. He's on the run. He's probably sleeping under the stars in the open. He, he didn't toss and turn all night. No, he slept and he awoke. Why, he says, because the Lord, for the Lord sustained me. The Lord's got me. He's that shield about me. Verse six, I will not be afraid of 10,000 people. Man, he's a way better guy than I am. I will not be afraid of 10,000 people who have set themselves against me round about. There's this large, this is strong and intimidating army. It's coming at you. David says, I'm not afraid. What? Church, we have to be praying for each other like crazy. One another that the Lord would strengthen us That we would know, this is my prayer, that we would know and experience the presence of God the way that David is right here. Because we're moving as a nation, as a country, as a church, as a people, as individuals, whatever you want to call it, we're moving towards this direction. Do you know that? that the truths that we hold firm like in God's word, the values that we want to embrace you know, as a people, as individuals, the biblical morality that we're like, I we want to stand upon these things, the hope in, in Jesus alone, that message that you need, to, you need to repent of your sin and turn to Jesus for salvation, like that's beginning to become all the more unpopular in our culture. And we're moving forward to a day that we're going to find ourselves against, like David is right now, thousands of people against us setting themselves against me, he says, round about, trying to intimidate you, trying to change you or have you change and soften your message and who you are and who God has made you to be. And there might very well be for you and I persecution. Like, don't think we've ever been seen persecution, thankfully, in our nation, but we we might see some persecution for standing upon God's word. This is the reality. So let's be praying now for one another, that God would strengthen us. Let's be praying now for pastors, not just in our church, but just in our community, and our nation, that they would be strengthened and emboldened to stand upon God's word, as Paul would write in 1 Corinthians, to be strong and immovable. That's what we need. And that's the prayer that we need to be praying for each other. Like David said in Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? The psalmist would say in Psalm 118, the Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The Lord is with me. He's my helper. What can man do to me? The Lord's with me. Verse seven, arise, O Lord, Save me, O oh my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. David here is just recalling God's act of faithfulness to him. Whether this was um, when he was on the run from Saul, right, just preserving his life, or in the early on in the battlefield, maybe against Goliath. God, you've gone before me. You've done it all before. Would you do it again? David Gutzik said this, knowing what God had done gives David confidence in what the Lord would do. It says salvation in verse eight belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people, say David knew that salvation, both the old, in the ultimate sense and the immediate sense of his life, belongs strictly to the Lord. What can man do to me, right? David wasn't sizing up his army. Okay, let's see what kind of resources do we have to go, go battle against my son, against this, these 10,000 soldiers just coming about, coming against me. No, no, no. He was trusting in the Lord to save him. Lord, this battle is yours Whatever you want to do with it, that's on you. You don't need me. I just want to trust you. I've made a mess when I keep, <laughs> take things into my own hands. I need to follow after you and trust you. You know, David would say in Psalm 20, some trust in chariots and some in horsemen, some in 10,000 soldiers, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. Amen. And then he says one last time in this chapter, Selah, pause, okay. Salvation is yours. Let's quiet down the noise. Let's reflect. Let's ponder this. Again, this like this a morning song, like an AM song. Alarm clock goes off. Lord, there are people in my life. This is the way he's starting. There's people that wanting to, they're wanting to kill me. When I went to bed, I thought, man, how is this even possible? How is everyone out to get me? They're accusing me of this thing and that thing. David, you don't love me, and David, you don't blah blah blah. But I don't care of any of that. David says here. Lord, you're the shield. This is how he's starting his morning. Lord, you're a shield around me. You're my glory. Here I am, Lord. This is another day. Your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You've preserved me. Your, your blessing, is, as a, Lord, is upon your people, and I'm one of them. I'm a recipient of your blessing. Think about that. When the Lord is your shield, when the Lord is the one who sustains you, it doesn't matter if, if the odds are stacked against you. We looked over and over again in our study in Chronicles. For those of you that that were here, one with God is a majority. It's all we need is God. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? And there's this peace that comes with knowing that we're in God's hands. Again, what can man do to me? The peace that comes by just simply trusting in the Lord with all of your heart. Now chapter 4. Again, whether you would think that these two are combined at the hip or not, like I said at the intro, um, there are a lot of scholars, smarter people than I am, like guys like Spurgeon, that would say yes, these two would go together. The circumstances are very similar in how he's writing it but the application is nonetheless the same. He says it's for the choir director on stringed instruments, a psalm of David. This was to be sung. This is to be part of the corporate worship in verse one. And it says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Notice how personal this prayer is. If you, if you go back, answer me when I call Oh, God of my righteousness, you've relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Again, his hope is fully in the Lord. God, I need you. I need you. He says, oh, God of my righteousness. He's not saying you're, you're, you're my God because I'm righteous, but rather you're, you're because you're merciful, because you're slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, because you're the one who has declared me righteous. He says, answer me when I call to you. Because I'm yours, right? You've relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. He's saying, Lord, you're the God of my righteousness. Oh, hear me. Again, he's recounting God's past faithfulness, his mercy in his life. You have relieved me in my distress. And because of that, Lord, be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Lord, you've done it before. Would you do it again? He says, Selah. Verse two. O oh, sons of men how long will my honor become a reproach David now is now turning to those around him he says how long will my honor become a reproach or maybe your translation says how long will you turn my glory to shame And these guys are just doing just that. Again, if it's in the context of of what we've been um, reading and David's on the run, his reputation has and is just going through the mud right here, he says, how long will you do this? How long will you love what is worthless? Or that word is emptiness and aim at deception. That is lies. He says, how long are you gonna do this? I mean, we live in a culture that tries to take the glory of the Lord and turn it into shame, right? We live in a culture that just loves worthlessness. Solomon used the word vanity to describe this very thing. But our world loves and it chases after things that will never satisfy them. And David says, how long are you going to love this stuff? How long are you going to aim at deception? In other words, chase after the lie, buy into the emptiness Think of something that you think will satisfy, but it's not. And you know the answer to it just as much as I do, but you're buying into it, man. You're putting your stock into it. How long are you going to do this? And he says, law, ponder that, slow down, pause, consider this. Verse three, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. David knew again, as we just briefly mentioned, that his righteousness or his rightness before the Lord had nothing to do with him. He says that the Lord sets apart the godly for himself. David knows that he's only godly because the Lord has shown him grace and mercy in in incredible ways in his life. So it's not, you're perfect. You know, Oswald Chambers said this, Christian perfection is not and never can be human perfection. Christian perfection is the perfection of a relationship with God. utmost for his highest, Oswald Chambers. And so when David says, know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself, that Hebrew word for know is not simply intellectual knowledge about something or someone, but rather it's an experiential knowledge. It's an experiential edge sharpened through relationship. And because we have just an intimate relationship with the Lord, that's what he's established for all of us. He says we're, we're set apart for him. The Lord hears when I call them, he says, because we have this relationship with the Lord. We have confidence that he's going to listen when we do cry out to him. Verse four, tremble and do not sin. The idea behind this is, look, I know you're facing something really big in your life and it's causing instability. It's bringing instability in your life. And if this is the context of the previous chapter it would be that David, I know that thousands right now they're camped all around you and you don't have as many resources as they have. You don't have what it takes to meet what you're facing in your life right now. Maybe and maybe that's like the similar to you. You're like, "Dude, I relate to David in ways I never thought I could. It sounds like my life. I'm angry." Maybe your translation says, I'm shaking in fury about what's going on in my life, my circumstances. And David's thinking, man, this is overwhelming. I'm feeling vulnerable right now. But he says, even in the thick of it, even when you're going through it, your life is falling apart. He says, do not sin. But he says, meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. He says, meditate in your heart. He's not talking about Eastern like, med- practices of meditation where the goal is to empty yourself, empty your mind, empty everything, like, empty your thoughts, like and just sit in like nothingness or whatever, but rather to meditate and do so biblically, right? I think of, is it Psalm 1 that we just went through last week? The godly person, what does he do? He delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates. It's the word of God. He meditates on it day and night. And that's what David is saying. Meditate. Meditate on the word of God when you're in bed. It's a great time, man. I watch a lot of TV in my bed. Maybe I should meditate on God's word. And then he says, and then, you know, what's next after you've meditated on God's word? Be still. Wow. And that being still is a posture of saying, God, I trust you. I don't have to bite my nails. I don't have to be squirmish. I can just, oh, God, you got this. Say law. So, what they would do, they'd read this or sing this. Let's ponder that. Be still and know that I'm God. Verse five offer the sacrifices of the righteous and trust in the Lord. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. David's saying, there's a lot of people out that are asking, will God show us anything good? And so we ask the Lord, he says, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. In essence, he's saying, Lord, your presence, your presence outweighs everything else. That's, and that's what we desire. God is your presence. That's what we want in, your, in our lives is for more of you. We want you to light up the countenance of your countenance upon us. He says in verse 7, you have put gladness in my heart, more than their grain and new wine abound. Lord, even in spite of the horrible day that I'm having right now, in spite of the horrible year that we just had last year that we don't want to remember about, in spite of Whatever it is in our current circumstance, Lord, you've put gladness in my heart. You've done this. And he's saying, man, the joy that I feel because of what the Lord has done, because of your presence in my life, he says, it weighs more than the joy that they have in the time of harvest, when they're bringing in the grain, when they're bringing in the wine. Yeah, the ungodly can be happy, right, for a short time when the money's rolling in, when everything is appearing to be prosperous and fruitful and they're wealthy and healthy. But for me, Lord, he says, because of you, even when I find myself on the run from my son, I've been betrayed, my kingdom has been overthrown, I've lost a lot of friends, thousands are literally coming at me, hunting me down. He says, I have more joy because of you and your presence in my life more than anyone else. And that's why I believe the author of one of my, my, one of my favorite songs, one of Pastor Doug's favorite songs, Give Me Jesus, would, would write this words: you can have all of the world, but give me Jesus. Because we have the Lord, it outweighs everything that this world could possibly ever hope to offer us. I was daydreaming a little bit about winning the lottery. You know, it was the mega millions and the Powerball, man, it was like, what, a half a billion dollars. And I'm like, Lord, I can do so, it was a little overwhelming, but you know, like, no, no, man, just knowing the Lord, being in his presence, knowing that you're in his hands, knowing that he has you in the midst, whether you're in a valley or a mountaintop, get those right, valley, (laughs) he's got you. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got your circumstances in his hands. And it outweighs everything that this world could possibly give us. And then he says in verse eight, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. David's like, man, I could sleep good at night, even in horrible times. Why? Because the presence of the Lord was with him. He trusted in the Lord to keep him him safe. Listen tonight as we wrap this up. If you are finding yourself in similar circumstances when you're going through incredible hurt and pain where the closest people in your life that you have loved and stood with have betrayed you and you feel like maybe you're like, I can't, I don't know if I can face tomorrow. Can I encourage you to take this chapter home and reread it tonight and read it again? You know, doing preparation a few nights ago, I was reading through the, the second Samuel chapters, just re- getting, just refreshing myself in the story of Absalom. And then I would turn over to Psalm 3 and 4 and just read it and almost come to tears, just thinking just the weightiness of what David was going through. And I'm like, man, how hard. But then just seeing his confidence and his need for the Lord in his life. And I'm like, guys, there's hope in the Lord. I can't promise you hope in anything else. I can't promise you hope in your job or in four years, the election or downtown Portland cleaning up. Like I can't promise you anything, but I can promise you this, that the Lord will never leave you nor forsake you. And he'll be with you. And you can cry to him and he'll answer you. He'll be faithful to you. But read it, read it again and read it again and read it again. And my prayer is, God, would you just show us, would you put in our hearts what you showed David all those years ago? And I believe the Lord wants us to find rest in him. Not just sleep, though some of you are like, yes, I can use some sleep, but rest in him. Oh, that we would know the Lord more. That was my prayer at our young adult gathering. Lord, that we would just know you more. That's my prayer for us tonight. So that we can say in the midst of the darkest days that we will ever face, but you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me. You're my glory and you're the one who lifts my head. Amen. Lord, tonight we thank you that we can stand upon the truth of your word, that it is probably so relevant thousands of years ago, and then yet tonight we can come to it and find hope and encouragement in you. And I just pray tonight for my brothers and sisters here in this room that you would just minister to them as they go, as we go our separate ways tonight, that this beautiful reality of your presence with us and that's all that we need in life that you, that we're in your hands and that we can trust you with everything i pray that that would just take deep root in our hearts I pray that for my own life i pray that for our church that no matter how dark the days get that we would just stand upon you and who you are that we would be found immovable and shakable So, Lord, would you just stir our hearts tonight, As even as we worship you, just take a few minutes just to reflect, to, to say law about this passage and just reflect and pause. And maybe we'll just sit here in silence as the, the song is sung, I don't know. But just, Lord, would you just minister to our hearts, stir our affection for you tonight, that we would walk out those doors more in awe of you, more in love with you than when we came in. And it's in your, your name we pray, Amen.